Spencer, did you get out and ride your bicycle this weekend? Yeah, I definitely did, Fred. It was a nice week. A little hot, but it was it was good to get out. How many miles did you log? Uh, maybe seventy-ish or so. Jeez, I, it was man. like I did a mountain bike ride, so you know the miles don't pile up quite as much when you're on trails. Still though, seventy miles. You surpassed the fifty-mile threshold. That 50-mile threshold put down by our good friends at Health IQ. Oh. If you ride more than 50 miles a week, then you likely qualify to get $500,000 in life insurance coverage starting at $20 a month with Health IQ. Nice. Only 50 miles a week. Uh, Health IQ has set up a website for our listeners, healthiq.com slash velonews, where you can take a Health IQ uh, quiz to see if you qualify for this amazing deal. And I bet you do if you're listening to this podcast because you probably like riding bikes like you and I and Fred and uh, you can save money on that life insurance. So just go take that quiz, healthiq.com slash velonews. Yeah, and Health IQ is the life insurance company that works with healthy individuals, runners, cyclists, triathletes, people who swim, Ooh. even vegans, and can give them a great rate on life insurance because they are so healthy. So again, healthiq.com slash velonews. Thanks to Health IQ for sponsoring this week's episode of the show. Let's get on with the podcast. We are back. It's the Velonews podcast. It is Monday afternoon. Spencer and I are in the Velonews podcast world headquarters studio, which is a small closet space here in the basement. But we're heading somewhere even better yeah, we in the are. next day or so, Fred. We're going to Reno, Nevada for Interbike. Biggest little town in the West yeah. or in the world. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to spending a lot of money on those roulette tables. But first things first, we got to get to this podcast before we fly out of here. Yeah, we are squeezing this one in before we catch our respective fr flights to Reno, where we will be uh, brushing elbows with the elite members of the cycling industry and also... Uh, other, you know, fellow news people. <laughs> That's true. We're all, you know, everyone's in it together. Interbike, if you haven't gone there, it's uh, it's an interesting experience in which you see lots of guys and some gals, and you talk about bikes, and you get your finger on the pulse of what type of new products are coming out. And then after many hours of that, you are like, oh my God, get me on a flight out of here. And you usually have a low-grade fever. Yeah. That's true. So the next time you're hearing from us, we may be in the post-interbike doldrums. But yeah, as Spencer mentioned, we have to talk about a lot of different things on this week's show. The Vuelta España wrapped up on Sunday with the decisive stages coming Friday and Saturday in and around Andorra. And Simon Yates was able to escape with the win. We're going to talk about that race. Then I am going to talk with Gregor Brown, who was at the race. And Gregor breaks down the action of those two stages. And Gregor also did an interview with Matt White, the sports director for Team Mitchelton Scott, to talk about the significance of this victory. Because this is Mitchelton Scott's first Grand Tour win. Big one, big one. And that team has been slowly evolving into a GC team over several years. When they first came out, they were stage hunters, they were sprinters. They weren't really looking to these big prizes of, uh, you know, the GCU for the Welta or the Tour or the Giro. But now they're in the mix. They've got Simon Yates and they've got a few others uh, in their in their stable that can win these Grand Tours. Well, as I was to say, the thing that changed that was uh, one day they rolled out of bed and there were these two identical sweet boys at the foot of their bed. The Yates brothers who that just sounds, that, materialized out of thin air. Poof. That sounds like an M. Light Shyamalan movie. 
That's kind of <laughs> creepy. Kind of <laughs> creepy. There were two twins who were ready to fly to the top of the world's highest mountain, Simon and Adam Yates, and Esteban Chavez, too. Can't forget old Esteban. He's very cute. I love him. Uh, anyway, they are a great world tour, grand tour team, and now they've won their first grand tour. Uh, we're also going to talk about the Breck Epic Mountain Bike Stage Race, because Spencer, you have a great story on velonews.com right now. I suggest everyone go read it. And it's inside the Breck Epic's decision to not sell to Iron Man. No M. Dot tattoos. Mm-mm. I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, after reading that story, I agree with the decision. But it sounds like they walked away from a lot of money. They did. They did. It was a tough decision, yeah. but um, but it's an interesting story. All right. We're going to get to that later. But first, Vuelta España finished up. Simon Yates won the overall. And in a dramatic penultimate day of racing, we saw two Spanish youngsters. Well, one Spanish youngster, one Colombian youngster. Spanish speaking. Spanish speaking. Go on the attack. And that would be Enric Mas and Miguel Angel Lopez. And they were able to dethrone Alejandro Valverde and Stephen Kreuzweg. Kick them off the podium giving us a all-under-30 podium for the first time at a Grand Tour this year, which means Great Britain has now won all the Grand Tours in a calendar year. Yeah. Can you remember the last time a nation did that? Mm, uh, I I don't think so. I'd I'd have to go through the history books. Do you know? I do. You're setting me up for this. I am. All right, let's hear it, Fred. I believe it was 2008, where you had Contador, Sastra, Contador. Ooh, the Spaniards. Spaniards. But... That was just two riders, whereas this year it was three different British riders in Chris Froome, Garrett Thomas, and now Simon Yates. So that also represents the depth of that nation's talent. The Anglos are coming. I guess. Well, the Anglos are here. Yeah, they've invaded. So, Spencer, my first question for you, uh, some some broad questions about this year's Welta. Uh-huh. Was this a good Welta? Hmm. I, I liked parts of it. I found that it was like, a little slow to get started. I felt like that first week didn't have a lot of intrigue or excitement. A lot of the big names were already out of the picture right off the bat. Ruchi Port, Vincenzo Nibali, and we came to learn later that they just hadn't really any intention of truly chasing GC in this race. I, I felt that, I, you know me, Fred, I like these uh, sort of 1990s era rom-com type um Plot lines, the will they, won't they. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a little less of that this year that I would have liked. I also like the back and forth when someone loses the jersey and then takes it back. You know, that kind of drama for me really makes a Grand Tour special. And yes, there was question about whether Simon Yates would defend in this final week, given how he had a total train wreck disaster in the final week of the Giro this year, losing the, the lead there and losing the podium as well. Uh, but it always seemed like he was fairly well in control, and it seemed like Mitchelton Scott had a good stable of support riders that could you know, shepherd him through the mountains. Um, Valverde looked amazing that first week, winning a couple stages, but as we got into the mountains, he never seemed particularly dangerous. And I did really enjoy with Enric Mas and Miguel Angel Lopez attacking that I like I like where they're headed with this they still I think need to put it together and really challenge for that leader's jersey but to me it was um it was a lot to talk about in that final week but there wasn't as much to watch yeah I I'm a little bit more upbeat on it I give it three glasses of Rioja Mm. um I think that out of how many out of five that's fair. Three out of five. I, I would say that's that's pretty fair. I think that at, at face value, this Welta had everything that we look for in a Welta. So we had breakaways that made it all the way to the finish line. I mean, that uh, stage in which 
um, Yellow Wallace was able to finish. Yeah, Jelly Wallace. Jelly Jellied Wallace. Yellow Wallace was able to finish just ahead of the right. uh, chase group. Was so dramatic and so fun. We had plenty of these steep crushing finishes stage 17 won by michael woods on that ultra steep 25 percent climb to you know we're just we can't pronounce these things. we can just say it was in the boss country the and boss leave it at climb. that and i you know you're totally right it's this was a this was a, a tour for the breakaways this was a welter for the breakaways if you like that excitement if you like seeing fresh faces win there was a lot of that well so that was you know going on like sorry again stealing your thunder the welta had fresh faces it was the race of the future it has a 26 year old uh grand tour star of the future winning finally putting it together to step on the podium uh so at face value this welta had really everything but i'm with you it lacked a little something special to push it over the top it lacked it lacked that really dramatic day of racing where everything got thrown into chaos. Um, for yeah, all, there's no there's no stage 19 of the Giro when right. when Chris Froome took took the race by a scruff of its neck, for instance. For all of his up and comer status, um, Simon Yates looked pretty in control of this race once we got to the third week. I think it was very evident that he was the strongest guy. And you know what? Kudos to him for looking that strong. I think that um, to ride that confidently, I'm thinking of the last two, the penultimate stage in the day before, he was never really put under pressure. And even in these moments where like Movistar was trying things out and Astana were trying things out, he just looked so calm and collected. And that is great to see, but also that level of strength just speaks to someone who's so much better than everyone else. Plus, yeah, Nibali and Richie Port, who I think all of us, you know, put at least in our top five favorites, were complete and utter washouts from like stage two onward. We just kind of underestimated what their objectives were coming into this and what their form was coming into this. Those guys, I think, are really gunning for that world championships. And uh, there was there's a great story on our website a little earlier in the Welta talking about that tension between racing for a GC result at the Welta and trying not to burn the candle at both ends, so to speak, if you're looking to the world championships. It's one of the few years when the climber could win a world championship title. I think Gregor Brown wrote that story. So now that we're done with Grand Tour season, what was the best Grand Tour of the year? Pretty pretty solid Giro for yeah. me. Yeah. I'd say yeah. just seeing Chris Froome come into his own at the end there, especially after being pretty far off in the first week or so. I You know, it's easy to hate Chris Froome. It's easy to get upset about the Salbutamol case from earlier in the season, Team Sky's continued dominance, et cetera, et cetera. But just strictly on racing merits from a fan's perspective, the X's and O's, that was really wild race to see unfold in that final week. Yeah, we just don't get days of racing like that too often. I mean, pretty much once every decade or so. It was so. an instant classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm with you. Giro's the best one. Um, what was the most memorable moment for you of this year's Welta? I I think it's got to be Michael Woods winning in the Boss Country and the emotion of that finish when he when he revealed to the world that uh, he and his wife they had lost a child to stillbirth earlier in the year and just how how emotionally charged it was that was really special and it was just an exciting finish just even if even if we hadn't heard any of that it still was just a wild exciting finish on that steep final pitch it was just a great stage of racing. 
Yeah, I'm with you, but as to not completely agree with you, I'm going to go with my runner-up, which was the stage nine finish to La Covetia, mm. won by Ben King, his second stage win. Also you know, as I mentioned at the top, uh, this was a welter of breakaways succeeding, and nobody benefited from that quite like Ben King, guy who has been looking for his first Grand Tour wins for his entire career, and gets two of them in the same race. And this La Covetia, I just I haven't seen someone just suffer like that, suffer that hard in a long time. So it was really, really cool to see him gut it out. Let me throw in a third one. Uh, this is maybe a proxy vote for Dane since he's not here. Mm. He's still on vacation, taking yep. it easy. Uh, I'm going to say stage 14. Uh, that finish at Les Praris Nava, I think mm -hmm. is how you say it. That was such a Vuelta finish because it like the guys didn't quite know where the climb was going. There were some weird descents thrown in the mix. It was super duper narrow, basically a bike path. Um, Simon Yates plays the tactics perfectly. He's patient. Early attacks by Quintana, early attacks by Lopez. That was just exciting, exciting racing into the finish there. Very tactical too, not strictly like a, not strictly a fitness test. You know what I mean? So to me, that would be a, a, a solid runner up. I thought you were going to say stage 13, which had a similarly steep finish, but was won by uh, Oscar Rodriguez, who nobody knew about. But I, but Dane was probably like, oh, yeah, Oscar Rodriguez, of course. Yeah, probably made the whole race. Well, you you know, probably, he's it, probably more excited about Jelly Walleyes, though. Yeah. You never, he, he never likes, heard Oscar Rodriguez? He likes the Northern Europeans a little more generally when it comes to the obscure riders. But. Oh, Dane, we miss you. Come on back, Dane. Come back you. from your vacation. All right. Um, last question for you. What did we learn? What did we learn about uh, the state of racing, the Pro Peloton, anything? What did you learn from this year's uh, Welta España? Mm, that's a tough one. I think that I think that I learned that a pure climber can still win a Grand Tour. Yep. Uh, I think it's fair to say Simon Yates is a pure climber, not really much of a time trial rider. Granted, the field this year is pretty weak in terms of GC riders who are capable of doing a strong time trial race your Tom Dumoulin's, your Chris Rooms, that sort of thing. Um, but this goes back to, you know, the 2016 Welta was Nairo Quintana, the last, what I'd say, a pure climber to win a GC. So two years now, and finally Yates breaks through. Uh, yeah, it still is really important to be a good time trialist, especially for a race like the Tour de France, but... I don't think we've seen the last of a pure climber who wins a GC in a Grand Tour. Well, especially if it's a Vuelta España, where That's, yeah. you know the Tour de France guys are tired, everyone's on different form, and there are these crushing steep climbs every other day. I, I think we learned a, a couple of things. I mean, you mentioned Quintana. Oh boy, what did we learn about Nairo Quintana? I mean, Ooh. is he still a top five favorite at a Grand Tour? He's is, not. He is he still a, a is he still a podium threat mm. at a Grand Tour? He's in the hot seat. That's for sure. One year left with Movistar. What's he going to do? Yeah, I mean, he just was not impressive this year at all. And he obviously did not have the legs. Uh, what do we learn about Alejandro Valverde? I think it's stuff that we kind of already knew, which is that he is an explosive, great rider uh, for one-week races, 10-day races. But three weeks, it just, just doesn't have it. It was those long, crushing climbs that just ultimately did him in. And uh, it was a shame going into those penultimate stage, that penultimate stage in the day before I was hoping for him to do something and he just got stepped on. Um, I think we also learned something about uh, Simon Yates, which is that, you know, if he is able to take on these grand tours where he can limit his losses in the time trial, um, 
it's going to be an exciting watch. And I really am excited to see him go up against the likes of Tom Dumoulin and maybe mm. even Chris Froome in the future because, you know, we have these riders at the Grand Tour level who are sort of trying to copy the Chris Froome mold. Hey, be a good time trialist. Be good on the long crushing climbs. Well, what if you have a really explosive climber who can get gaps on those climbs, isn't as good in the, in the time trial, and you just have a rider with completely different skill set going up against these traditional riders, or I guess these, you know, Grand Tour riders in the mold of Chris Froome. Um, I'm excited to see how that plays out in the future. That's what makes Grand Tours so good to watch is it's a very complicated equation. And there's a number of ways you can solve it. Well, uh, I spoke with Gregor Brown, who was on the ground at the Vuelta. We broke down the action of those last two decisive days. So let's hear from Gregor. Okay, I'm now joined by Gregor Brown. Gregor, our European correspondent, you're back home in Florence. How did you get home from the Vuelta so fast, Gregor? Yeah, they, they offer a direct flight from, uh, from uh, Barcelona to Florence. Uh, there was a quick stop over in Madrid, of course, you had to, you had to see that last stage, but uh, a lot of driving this year. Spain is a big, wide-open country, reminds me a lot of the American Midwest. Yeah, and some of those parts in southern Spain really remind me of like uh, Western Colorado or the Southwest, you know, that desert vibe. Uh, more, yeah. more tapas, better tapas, though. So, Gregor, yeah. let's get into it. We saw just a ton of action go down in the uh, last few stages of this Vuelta España. The stages I really want to focus on, stage 19, the summit finish to uh, Naturlandia, which looked like just a very nice natural park. And then uh, stage 20, the summit finish to, I'm just going to butcher the name of this poor place. So I'll just say the stage 20 summit finish. You know, these two days. Well, I, 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 just, I just call it Galena. Galena. You know, they, they keep, yeah, each of these stages, they come with some fancy names that uh, where the stage finishes near something they're trying to. To, to advertise so <laughs> in the case with the stage 20 which was it was the cold de la galina and then uh, stage 19 uh, naturlandia which is somewhat nearby but really they were on the what, what little climb was that we were on uh i should not now my memory fades fred but, but yeah uh yeah, I'll 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 find that for us, and and we'll talk about it when we get to it. There was but awesome days in Andorra where finally we saw Simon Yates, which just led off the leash because uh, Mitchelton Scott was keeping him under wraps a little bit after the the Giro d'Italia. They're keeping him off, you know, a little bit. They're they're pulling the throttle back on him. Uh, well, actually putting what do you call it a, a throttle control on him, and then finally they let him loose and let him do his thing in, in those stages, which is pretty cool. Yeah, because these were both the two, you know, stages. Well, not so much stage 19. I came into stage 19 thinking that it could be a bit of a bore because, um, you know, it was one big long drag to the finish, but it was sort of your Tour de France style long grinder climb. It was steep at the bottom, but stage 20 was one of these really innovative, you know, it was 100 less than 100 kilometers. The profile looked like shark's teeth. It was just climb after climb after climb. And I didn't know what to expect from Simon Yates coming into these. We obviously saw him ride really aggressively. But, you know, Gregor, coming into these days, what was the messaging coming out of Team Mitchelton Scott? Were they were they talking about unleashing Yates or were they, you know, kind of keeping their plan a secret? 
Uh, well, I mean, you know, the the big worry was Valverde going into those days because he was somewhere like he was 27, uh, excuse me, 25 seconds back uh, on Yates heading into those days, and so everybody was kind of talking, you know, can Valverde come come and win this thing at 38 years old against Yates, 26, and so that was the big thing, and you know, so Yates was going to have to defend the Movistar front, uh, Valverde's team with Quintana as well. Uh, where at times Yates said himself that, you know, he felt like uh, they had the numerical advantage. And so that was the talk going into those two stages. And that stage 19, here it is, Rabasa. Uh, Rabasa, that's that's the name of the climb. So natural, Naturalandia is just midway up the climb, but the, the, they climbed up at Rabasa. Uh, so that was the talk. And it's like, you know, was Valverde at 38 years old going to come come and win another uh, Vuelta España? Uh, what are we eight years eight years on from his first one in 2009, where we were one over one over Samuel Sanchez and Cadell Evans? And and Movistar, you know, hats off. They they tried to split the race into echelons that day, um, heading into that final climb, and then and then we saw that we saw that launch by uh, Quintana. That we, we thought well, you know he's going to stir things up, and it actually just kind of pulled out. Uh, other riders and uh, put Valverde put Valverde into trouble, and then eventually we saw Yates attack at ten kilometers out and gain more time. So it was a great stage. Yeah, it was really interesting for me to see Quintana ride as a domestique. There were a lot of questions heading in. Well, would Quintana, you know, a guy who's been a team leader his whole life, actually ride as a domestique? And he did, and he attacked. Um, to draw some riders out, to put the pressure on Mitchelton Scott to try and chase. And I was happy to see that. But of course, then things went pear-shaped when Yates was able to bridge over with, I believe, Pino and Kreuzwick and uh, yeah. motor that group along. But then he did the admirable thing, which was to drop back and wait for Valverde. So that was the first time we saw Quintana ride as a domestique. And then we saw him ride as a domestique the stage 20 as well. Look, you know, as a fan coming into these stages, I'm not going to lie. I really wanted to see Valverde do it. He's he's old. He's 38. You know, I think a lot of the people I talked to were secretly hoping that Valverde might be able to pull it out. But uh, I don't know, Gregor, you're a guy who's covered Valverde for a number of years. Should we seen? Should we have seen this coming? I mean, he completely fell apart on these last two stages. Should we have seen it coming? Uh, should we have seen him? Uh, it, it looked like he was going to you know, hang in there for another podium finish in a Grand Tour. I, I didn't think he was going to crack. Well, crack. I mean, I didn't think he was going to fade the way he did Valverde. I thought he'd hang in there at least for second or third. And he ended that stage 19, a minute and a half, minute and 38 seconds down or something. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing was about Verde, people, people like the story of a 38-year-old rider still challenging for a Grand Tour overall, which is, you know, we saw that with Chris Warner, who won the belt uh, a, a few years back. The thing is with Valverde, you know, he served his time with Operation Puerto, but he never, you know, quite said sorry and came out and talked about it the way he should have. So, uh, you know, so it's kind of mixed feelings with Valverde. That 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 day was just a bit strange because Quintana goes out and then it was Cruzwick and Sam Bennett uh, who went over and the Cruzwick stayed and Pinot was there. The thing was, you know, once Cruzwick was there, that got the attention of um, Astana with uh, Lopez. So so really, instead of putting Mitchelton into trouble, uh, it was putting Astana into trouble. So Astana had to kind of start to chase. Um, it, and and then you know having Quintana up the road and then drawing drawing out Cruzwick wasn't an immediate threat to Yates and so that the plan didn't really work 
very well. And I was scratching my head thinking, well, what is Movistar doing here? And then, yeah, Quintana did drop back. But if you remember, Quintana worked for just a, a few few minutes with uh, that group. And then Valverde was dropped and the Quintana. Well, no, that was the next day Valverde was dropped from that group. But Quintana dropped back and then Quintana was dropped from Valverde's group and wasn't much help to Valverde afterwards anyway. So Movistar had some really strange uh, tactics in those in those last two uh, stages in Andorra. We weren't in Spain that day. We were up in Andorra, that little principality uh, nestled between France and Spain up in the Pyrenees. Yeah, and their troubles continued the next day on stage 20. And this was another tactically very interesting day. This is when we saw Astana really come to the fore. And on the penultimate climb, really, you know, uh, Miguel Angel Lopez had his guys go to the front, set a mean tempo, really shred the red jersey group down. And then he attacked gained an advantage. I thought he was going to be able to hold him off all the way to the summit and uh, descend with an advantage. But, you know, it was Simon Yates's brother, Adam Yates, who played the yeah. super domestic role and brought him back. But so we saw some really mysterious uh, strategies from Movistar again that day. What kind of a sense did you get from what they were trying to do? Uh, again, it was a sort of put Quintana off the front to try and set up Valverde and then the whole thing falls apart. What, what were they trying to do there? Yeah, again, you know, second day in a row, we saw Quintana go up the road and, um, you know, some of us are thinking, well, maybe Quintana's back in form and we can see Quintana, you know, ride, ride up into the podium and maybe the team had, you know, had some insight into Quintana and he was back on form because putting him up the road again, it, he, he wasn't a threat to Valverde and again, maybe he was going to draw out some of these other guys, but, um, you know, uh, Yates' closest rival was, was uh, Valverde, and then Moss was coming in and getting close too. But uh, that, that day we saw Quintana go up the road, and then, uh, and then, uh, then we, had, we had Yates sh shooting out uh, the pack with, like, uh, was it 17 kilometers to raise, and he did it on the descent, which was a smart move because he didn't want to be chasing in, in the valley uh, into that last uh, climb and that short stage. It was only 97 kilometers, 97, but the attacks never came early in the stage. It was there towards the end. Uh, what, you know, what it did is it shuffled the whole podium. We had uh, Lopez and, and Moss get up there on the podium, two young young guys. And if you look at it, Yates is the oldest guy at 26 on the podium, which is interesting. And then, uh, yeah, Valverde slipped, slipped away even further. So it's strange for Movistar. Movistar is... Movistar is going to have to, Xavier Unze is going to have to kind of think what's going on uh, this this winter because Valverde is obviously not going to challenge for a Grand Tour again. And Quintana, well, we're, we're hoping he comes back to the Quintana we saw, you know, back in 2016 when he won his last Grand Tour at the Volta España, but Quintana hasn't been on it. So uh, they're going to have to, um, you know, support Nikel Landa, support Quintana, hope Quintana comes back around. But uh Movistar had a strange uh, Volta España, and it was the same way at the Tour de France, too, where the only uh, saving grace there was Quintana's stage win. Yeah, you know, Spencer Paulson likened it to the Boston Red Sox losing the World Series at a home game at Fenway. That's how bad it was. Yeah. Um, you know, moving on, Mitchelton Scott, this is obviously a huge win for them. It's their first Grand Tour win. It's a win for Simon Yates, a guy that we've seen as a rider of the future for a long time. You know, you brought up the Giro d'Italia loss. Um, I think a lot of us looked at him as a guy who almost could go the distance, but in the you know last half of that third week, maybe didn't quite yet have the endurance to do it. 
you know, you talked a lot uh, with the Mitchelton Scott guys. What's the impression that you got of the significance of this victory for them? Well, it's it's big for their program, which they started a few years back, where they st- they uh, where they 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 started getting rid of, rid of the guys like uh, Simon Garens, Michael Matthews, uh, to support the the Grand Tours, uh, the Grand Tour team, and, and build up a Grand Tour squad with uh, with Simon's brother Adam, who is no slouch in the Grand Tours, and also uh, Esteban Chavez. So. This uh, talking with Matt White, uh, you know, he told us that this is going to boost the morale of uh, of that whole, you know, the whole team that's working towards these Grand Tours, the staff members, the riders. And we saw that we've seen it with, with with Team Sky. Sure, they they pull million, they pour millions, billions of, of pounds into that team, but uh, you know, once you get that first win, uh, it makes the second one that much easier, and that's that that morale is going to kick in, and that's going to help the team target uh you know again next year at the giro and simon's already hinting that he wants to go to the giro next year and uh yeah it just underlines that they've been going in the right path because after after the giro d'italia that disaster there uh they some of the some of the members in the team may have been wondering uh although matt white told us that uh simon had rebounded quite quickly and then then adam adam yates at the tour this year had kind of a an off tour where he, he suffered a little bit from uh, dehydration and heat. Uh, and so th- this, this win will be very important for the team. And also he, he came in as, as one of the B B star favorites. Uh, Quintana was the clear favorite at the start of Vuelta Espana that lacked Tom Duman, lacked Chris Froome, lacked Garen Thomas. Uh, so Quintana was the big star, but right below him were guys like, were guys like Simon Yates, uh, Kilderman, uh, maybe we thought Nibali might have a chance, but Nibali never had a chance. Our roof was at a disaster of the Vuelta España. But this win's going to really bolster Mitchelton Scott, who, if there are any big companies out there, they they need a big sponsor. So <laughs> maybe maybe it'll pull in some big money backers too. Yeah, I mean, if you are a listener of the Villainous Podcast and you want to sponsor yeah. a major cycling team, there you go, Mitchelton Scott. I think the interesting yeah. thing here too is to look at his potential now and say, okay, you know, he almost won the Giro. Now, uh, having learned how to win a Grand Tour, he could win the Giro. I don't know what it means for him as a Tour de France contender, though, because the Tour traditionally does have more miles of time trialing. Simon Yates, not the worst time trialist. He had a pretty good time trial at this year's well. But he's definitely not on the mm-hmm. same level as a Froome or a Dumoulin or any of these, you know, up and coming guys who really specialize in the time trial and also can climb. You know, he's sort of the throwback. He's the climber, the pure climber who finds a way to limit his losses in the time trial. And if there's enough climbing, he can be strategic enough to win. I thought that this year's Welta, he rode very uh, surgically is the way I would describe it. You know, he was very strong, but because he had to limit his efforts in those first two weeks because of the lessons that he learned at the Giro, you saw him come into that third week with a lot more oomph, and he was just, ah, he was merciless, man. I mean, it wasn't like he was uh, letting these guys hang around. He was making bold, decisive moves and hopping out of the main group into the front group. And um, I, I was impressed with what I saw. I thought he was, you know, he had the he had the knife out and was not afraid to cut up his rivals. Yeah, yeah, he he was on the offensive when he, he could have been easily riding defensively. Um, so it's, it's, it was cool to see. And and 
And and yeah, we we forget in the in the first weeks uh, the team was really holding them back and also let the red jersey go away. Um, so yeah, they they approach this race differently. And yeah, as you say, with with him aiming for a Tour de France, it's going to be difficult for him, Adam Yates, or even Esteban Chavez because once you get these TT riders like Dumoulin, Thomas, and Froome into a Grand Tour, it, those guys can also climb. Uh, nearly as well as a Yates. Um, so there's just no way to beat those guys. If you throw in a time trial, that's it's a disaster for a guy like Simon Yates. So still, it's going to be a problem for him in the future when those guys line up in the same race as uh, Simon. So, Gregor, before we let you go, you know, you were there for stage 17, which finished on the steep summit finish at Balcon de Biscaya. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Now this was Sounds the stage. Me, yeah. yeah, this was the stage won by the breakaway uh, of Mike Woods, Canadian rider from EF Education First Dre Pack, in a very dramatic battle on these twenty-five percent ramps in the final kilometer yeah, and a half. Yeah. Oh, it was such a dramatic day of racing! It was in the fog. It was you know back and forth, and then afterwards. Woods let it be known that he had dedicated the win to um, a stillborn son. He had, had he and his wife had, were pregnant. They had a son, and the son did not survive birth. Uh, it was a very sad story. Yeah. It was one of these rare moments where a professional athlete, a cyclist, very vulnerable um, and letting their emotions show. And I, I mean, I don't know about you. I, I saw the clip, and I was like about ready to cry. I just, you know, I, I, it was so much emotion. You were there. How could you describe just the scene and the emotion that came out of Mike Woods with that victory. What, what was it like to be there? I mean, it was like um, just, you know, seeing him, seeing him win, of course, it was as, as, as a, an American, you know, Woods from over the border in Canada, uh, and, and him being such a friendly and always available guy, uh, you know, you, you kind of you root for your, your home rider. And, and so seeing him win that day, uh, you know, he, he had uh, Rafael Mike. It's, it's some tough, tough rivals at, in the group. Um, uh, Micah, Toons, Dylan Toons, and, and who else was in there? Uh, David De La Cruz. So these guys, these guys were no slouches. And then before, also, they also whittled that group down. There were other big names uh, in the escape that, that day. So, and, and including his teammate, Simon Clark, who, who was instrumental in him winning the stage because he was giving him a lot of advice. And he'd already won a stage earlier in, in the Vuelta España and he has many experience as well. So he knows how to manage these, these days. Uh, so seeing Woods win was, was pretty cool. And, and, uh, you know, we were all happy for Mike Woods to win Rusty Woods. And then, you know, geez, I mean, I had no idea about uh, what was going on. I, I think when we spoke with him at the, at the Giro d'Italia, uh, he was there, uh, racing and he had some problems with uh, allergies due to olive trees. If, I don't know if you've heard that, but uh, yeah, I think he mentioned his wife was pregnant there a couple times, um, and I think it was just right after the Tour of Italy that uh, uh, they had the, the the stillborn hunter uh, who died. So uh, it's, it's terrible, and just you know, of course, these riders are very emotional. Of course, when you win, it's a very emotional thing. Within uh, and then he obviously had this up. Built up inside him too, and, and his wife also uh, had her father die uh, this year as well. So it bit, he mentioned it had been an emotional time for them. So, I mean, everybody was just happy to, to see him win, and then also to hear that story. I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a dry eye in Spain. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, cyclists 
remind me sometimes like hockey players where they can be very stoic and they can be very matter of fact discussing, you know, what went on in a race or what it was like to have a performance, et cetera, et cetera. You don't always get these outpourings of emotions like that, especially from riders, you know, who are used to winning, who are, uh, you know, Peter Sagan, sometimes he'll use the post-victory uh, interview as a place to kind of clown around and have some fun. And so to see this man really be overcome with the memory and the emotion of this very sad chapter in his life um, was, you know, it was one of those things that's sort of everything that's good about sports. I mean, it's obviously a very tragic story and our heart goes out to the Woods family, but to see that, use that platform as a way to express emotion like that, um, I don't know. It, 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 I, have a, I have a lot of time for Mike Woods. I'm a, it made me a, an immense fan of that guy. Yeah, not not every cyclist, and you know, of course, it's his decision to put that out there and and, and let everybody know in public in interviews about what happened. Not everybody would you know share that. Uh, I think probably emotions just overcame him, and um, you know, we found out, of course, that you know that they even have a name already picked out for the for the child too, Hunter. So it was it was quite gripping, and then and that just followed on what was a really gripping win. You know, seeing him battle through the Basque country where the, the roads had more fans than any other part of Spain, you know, cheering him on, cheering on all of his rivals too, through the mist and up, up to, that was one of the two new, new summit finishes in this uh, Volta Espana, the other one being Pareres, if I pronounce that correctly, where, where Simon Yates won his only stage victory in this Volta. But to see him, you know, go up there through through the mist among the fans and, and win the stage, his first world tour win, his first, win in a grand tour so that was all emotional and then you know to, to have um to have the story like that afterwards you know and you know as, as journalists we're always looking for headlines you know and it's terrible to have you know that automatically fall in your lap as a headline but that it immediately became and woods gets this emotional victory dedicates to stillborn son um you know it was just like all in, in your face at that point and but a great story and, and chapeau to him for sharing sharing what it's been a tough time for him too so well gregor you caught up with mitchelton scott's main man uh their director managing uh, sport director what's what's matt white's title sports over director yeah i think they call him head sports director and and uh actually uh matthew white matt white former racer raced on kofidis i think he raced a couple of years in the united states postal service australian who's just a always a good talker and their, their main the uh, mitchelton scott for for um Simon Yates and the team there. The main sports director was Kiwi New Zealander Julian Dean, who's a really cool dude. Uh, so they were both there in the uh, in the main car, uh, following the riders. And of course, Matt Matt tells it how it is. Hey Matt, how are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Joe. Good. Good. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, so uh, you guys uh, enjoy an evening of celebrations, uh, a little bit of wine, or was there time for that? Yeah, no, we had a couple of drinks last night. It was good. Good. What's the... What's long, long day. It's a long day last night. Long day. Yeah, by the time we got back to the hotel and everything, pretty early. Yeah, and you guys are you guys are now in Madrid? Yeah, yeah, we got in about half hour ago. Okay, okay, great. Uh, what what was the what was the overall mood in the team last night? A feeling of victory, or just uh, still looking ahead to the final day in Madrid? Oh, 
oh, look, we know we've won the race. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just more it's actually more relief than excitement. Really, it's, uh, you know, this, things can always go wrong. Yeah, uh, people can always have bad days, and uh, just to get it over the line yesterday was uh, it was a big relief for everyone involved. When when did uh, when did you guys know you had it won? Oh, uh, yeah, we, we had the we had the stage under control, uh, and then obviously when Simon was feeling good, and when he bridged across there to the uh, to um, to Lopez with uh, with Master, that was a pretty good situation for us. You know, we know we know that he that he's had that good legs, he could leave most of those other guys. And then uh, even when he got even when he lost contact on the final climb for the line, it was it was a controlled effort by him. And uh and yeah, he's not gonna lose he's not gonna lose two minutes uh off of our final climb of the day. But um yeah, you know, the closer we got to the finish line the the excitement was building, that's for sure. And looking back, uh, back you know, three weeks to the start in Malaga, did, did you did you think that that finally Simon had it in him to win a Grand Tour? Yes, I did. Yeah, well, we're going there. We knew the competition. We knew he had, he had good preparation, a different preparation for the Giro because it's a different time of the year. Uh, and uh, I was confident that, we, that he could win the race. Um, he, you know, the level he was at at the Giro. Was very high, and he's, we, we saw the numbers before he came here that he was putting out similar numbers. And uh, I liked the, the course of the role suits suited him. And uh, yeah, there's one thing about thinking you can do something, but uh, you know, three weeks and whatever eighty hours of racing to to, to, to guide the guys through without having incidents and injuries and illnesses, it's it's still a challenge to win a Grand Tour. That's for sure. Yeah. What 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 was the pivotal moment uh, for you and the team, and what what were those key stages that? The key steps that uh, Simon and the team went through. Yeah, I think I think the, the first key step was uh, managing managing the heat, uh, and we were sort of a little bit lucky there as well. Well, the, the, the race in general, it could have been a lot warmer in the south of Spain. It was hot, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but uh, you could you could easily had have had temperatures in the forties uh, that first week, and yeah. instead we had we had low to mid thirties. Uh, we had one really hot day. I can't remember which day it was, but uh, we got around thirty nine. But um, that, that makes a difference. And just managing managing uh, the team and managing you know, making that, managing those efforts in the heat is a big factor. Because yeah, yeah like everything in Grand Tours, everything comes back to bite you. Every bit of energy you, you waste or you, you put out, you, you pay for it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the first challenge. I think the heat. The second one was obviously time trial. Uh, you know, time trials. You, you, you never know how you the guys are going. The guys actually don't do that many time trials a year. And you know, 32 kilometres or whatever it was is quite a um, substantial distance. Yeah. And a lot of time, a lot of time could have been gained or lost, in which we saw there were some pretty decent gaps between the DC guys. So that's always a worry. And then obviously going into the last week, how uh, how people manage that fatigue of the first two weeks and, and how it affects them in the last. You saw with the DC guys there, you know, there was guys having great days and then having a bad day the day after, and how people pulled up out of the time trial and. And that, that's what ended up deciding GC, and, and Simon was the most consistent out of all, all those guys. Was there something that uh, that surprised you in this Grand Tour about Simon? Uh, no, no. I think uh, he's rode a lot, he rode uh, a lot more reserved than, than we did in the Giro. I said the Giro had a different plan. We, we, we went after stages, we went after speeds, we went after bonuses because we knew we needed a big a buffer on on Milan and Froome. Yeah. 
Simon time trials improved gears and they weren't here. So we we knew that the time trial stage wasn't we weren't going to be losing a lot of, a lot of time to the, to our rivals here. So um, we had a different tactic, and uh, no, he, he's he's confident in his ability. He, he was confident that he's going to be very competitive here, and I think it's been a, it's been a massive step for for him to. Uh, to get the job done, and uh, you know, we've uh, the, and the team around him support him very well. Matt, who who was the biggest rival going into the race? Because everybody talked up Quintana. I mean, what was the what was the view inside the team, and then and then how did that change as the race went on? Yeah, look, I uh, the the two movie star guys were always going to be threats, and I think what it showed um, what it showed is it's coming out of the Tour de France is, is not easy. Riding to see the Tour de France and trying to back up a month later and doing it again. And you saw that, you know, the the best guys in the last week of the race are the guys who didn't do the tour. And they were the freshest um, and the young guys. And I think that the movie star was always going to be a threat. I actually was quite worried and quite concerned about Kelvin, um yeah. because, uh, you yeah, know, he had... He, the, the thing with Kelvin, I don't know why... He did... He did uh, or he underperformed for his level here, but... He had had very, very little racing since when. Because he, I think he'd only done two or six months since April. And then he crashed in his nationals. So, and then no racing from nationals for years. So, he came in very, very under race. And uh, when I saw him cruising through the first week of the race, well, besides the fact we lost the net 45 on due to the puncture, um, he, he, for me, he was a danger because he, uh, he, because he was fresh and he, and he was a great time follower. But in the end, maybe because he was a little bit too fresh, and wasn't wasn't being able, wasn't able to perform at uh, the level that we we know that he can perform at. Mm-hmm. What uh, was it easy for Simon to rebound from from the disappointment of the Giro d'Italia? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. I think obviously he, he left it very. He, like, he he pushed his body harder than he ever pushed it in the Giro, and he needed a good rest, a good reset mentally and physically. Yeah. And um, but the, the beauty of the, the distance between the Giro and the Tour is you can do that. Um, the Giro and the Volta, you can do that. So. He was fresh. He didn't do much, much at all work in, in June, and then July and August we just building towards uh, towards here. So yeah. I think I think a lot of people, a lot of people make a big, uh, a big, uh, a big story about the Gio how he cracked, but he had a bad day. That's that's all there was to it. And uh, you know, people don't criticise the guys who are finishing fifth or seventh or whatever. This is, you know, he was the best. He was the best climber at the Gio, and he just had a bad day and bad climb and and. Uh, we didn't go to the Giro to finish 10th. We went there to try to win the race. And he did everything he could and put himself in the situation to try to do that. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people made a much more bigger fuss out of it than, than he did or we did. And then at the Vuelta, and as you said before, it was a different race, different rivals. But you guys purposely rode into the race, uh, letting teams like Movistar control the, the, the stages of many days, and then finally letting Simon loose in these last stages just to attack when he wanted to, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah, but we we didn't want the jersey for uh, for that long. It's uh, it's it's hard work. It's hard work on, on the teams, and you know you, sometimes you've got to play with the poker. Sometimes and they're wearing movie stars' backyard. Uh, they ha- they haven't had the best of their years as far as their grand tours, and um, they have a style of racing, especially here. And sometimes we need to take advantage of that, and also save our troops for the uh, for what was it very crucial last week. It's quite funny to think that uh, that Simon is the oldest oldest rider on on the final podium. Yeah, well, it's a different. There's another generation. You know, Lopez has been very consistent this year. Obviously, finishing 
two podiums in a grand tour, and then Mars has been the revelation of the race, really. Um, on a team that's not really, not even orientated for GC, right. he's been pretty isolated uh, in those, these mountain stages uh, for long periods of, because you know, the team is built around him, built around him, Um But he's got, obviously got a massive future, and uh, it's exciting for, for Spanish cycling because... Uh, now there's Gabo, he's not going to be around forever. Uh, and there's, it's, it's Lander and Lander and him. Yeah, Valverde he won't be around forever, that's for sure. And, did, and But uh, Simon will probably see him at the World Championships. Did, did Simon, did he save a bit in reserve or was there anything to save uh, for two weeks from now in, in Innsbruck? Yeah, look, he, he's, he's always had one eye on the, uh, he's always had one eye on, on the world. Uh and also, look, I think Adam's going to come out of here very well because he obviously hasn't gone as deep, hasn't gone as deep as uh, as Simon. And um, there's, it's a course that suits him. It's you know, probably what the hardest world, uh, hardest world championships in history, as far as meters of climbing and as far as uh, the, the toughness of the course. And it's I, I really struggle to see anyone winning the world who's not here, mm. who's not here at the World Cup. So. I think you'll see a few of the usual suspects. You know, the Valverde will lead the Spanish. Nibali will probably lead the Italians. Uh, the Brits have got two options there, and then uh, there's some other there's some other individuals. But it's uh, it's going to be exciting times. But it'll be he's, he's both of the aces have, got, so have always had one eye on the world. Yeah, and and you know, Ulrika Mitchelton, you guys have had the eye on Grand Tours. You guys have been pushing for it for a long time. Now you finally got your first Grand Tour win. What's this going to do for for Simon, for the for for Adam, for Esteban Chavez? What, what's this going to do for the whole team looking ahead into 2019 and beyond? Yeah, look, people say we've been pushing it for a long time. This is only the third year we've done it. We, we, the team's only existed for six years, uh, and the first time we rode this year was 2016. So it's only the third year we've done it. Um, I, we get a lot of attention because you know, we've we, we've stated. I think other teams. Maybe not state their goals as, as much as we do, but you know, if ten or fifteen, ten teams came here with the same ambitions as us, and when you look at how many teams have actually won a, have won a grand tour in the last five years, you can even count it up. There's only six teams have won a grand tour. They have any grand tours in the last in the last six, five or six years. So it's not too many teams. You know, when Sky, Sky and Astana, Sky have dominated the tour, and Astana have had a lot of success across the park in, in all three. Uh, there's not too many teams have won a grand tour, so it's a nice feeling. Um, and, you know, we've got a very similar team next year and our, our, our goals are clear. Well, we, we're going to go after the three grand tours again. How we do it, we'll make that decision later in the year. Um, but it, I think it gives a lot of confidence, not only to our GC guys, um, but also the other riders. That, that, you know, we, we've got a very different team. I think Jack Hayes is the only guy who is at the Giro uh, backing up. So you know we've done, yeah we've done. Uh, it's, a, it's a really successful year and a really successful world with basically different teams, and um, we got some good backups coming in next year. And uh, you know hopefully we can have Esteban back back healthy because he, he's going to be uh, he's going to be vital to our goals for next year as well. But between Esteban and the and our developing riders, we're we're in a good place. And it sounds like Simon, he said in the press conference yesterday, yesterday that he has a score to settle in the Giro d'Italia, that he wants to return to the Giro d'Italia before uh, before thinking about the Tour de France. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> I guess over the winter you guys can uh, sit down and sort out where all three riders go, but uh, for now uh, you get the Volta a España to enjoy, so thank you, Matt. Appreciate your time on that. No worries.
Yeah, yeah. No worries, mate. All right, well, enjoy, enjoy today. I'm not around. I already took off and came back to Italy, so uh, I appreciated your time there in the race. And, and it was well for Julian as well, so congratulations. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, great. See, I'll, I'll see, see you at uh, Lombardia World. Yeah, yeah, I'll be around. Thanks, Matt. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye. Um, you know, I, I'm going to remember this Welta, but I'm not going to remember it for that long. <laughs> that happens. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Uh, moving on, Spencer, today, Monday, we have a story on our website about the Breck Epic, seven-day mountain bike stage race here in the uh, Colorado Rockies. It's been going on for nine years. And earlier this year, there were rumblings that Ironman, the World Triathlon Corporation, was trying to buy the Breck Epic. It looked like the deal was going forward. It looked like the Breck Epic was going to become part of the family of the Absa Cape Epic, which is now owned by uh, Ironman. And then at the last minute, 11th hour, the deal was off. You spent some time speaking with the organizers, some local politicians in Breckenridge, racers, people who knew this thing the best. And you have a great story up there that takes us inside why this thing uh, ultimately did happen. So a question I have for you first off the top is, what was the significance of this deal within the Breck Epic's history and organizational structure? What would this deal, what would being purchased by the WTC have meant for the Breck Epic? Yeah, it's a really significant deal for a few reasons. And uh, I'd say first and foremost, it's significant because Breck Epic, it's been around 10 years. It's a pretty well-established mountain bike stage race. But I would say overall, it's viewed as more of a grassroots event. Um, Mike McCormick is the man behind it, the uh, the promoter, as you'd say. And he basically built this thing from the ground up. He's he's grown it himself. He He's kind of a man of, a jack of all trades in the bike industry. He has a, a PR agency, Uncommon Communications. And he has sort of proud... Pr- he sort of prided himself on the fact that this is kind of an upstart race, and um, it's just the type of thing that it doesn't necessarily, you know, at face value, it seems like a little bit different from these larger um, events backed by corporations such as uh, Ironman or Lifetime Fitness, which now owns uh, the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. So from that standpoint, it would be a big change in terms of it being part of a larger corporate family. Now, what that means on the ground is it means there would just be a lot more support for McCormick and his crew. He would have lots and lots of professionals from the, the Ironman family at his disposal. Uh, he told me himself in, in kind of a, a funny way that he has, or he said that it's, the Breck Epic would look more World Cuppy. So, you know, we're yeah. talking corporate sponsors, we're talking the banners, we're talking higher production value. It would also grow um, over a course of several years. The plan was for Ironman to expand the number of registrants to about uh, 1,500, whereas now it's around 500. So bigger in that respect. And uh, also it would become a much more internationally visible event because Ironman, it's very uh, deliberate about its media distribution and it, goes to great lengths to get the Asaba Cape, or the Asaba Cape, 
I keep saying that wrong. The Cape Epic, you get the Cape Epic on, you know, uh, on Eurosport, on N- on NBC Sports, other other outlets like that. The plan was to do similar for Breck Epic and to just include it in part of that family, that portfolio of event, events that is growing. So I would think that a town would be very excited about something like this because you're talking about international media exposure. You're talking about bringing over athletes from Europe to come participate. Um, historically, these Colorado mountain towns have looked forward to having races like the old USA Pro Challenge come through because of the media exposure in Europe. Um, these towns make their bones off of wintertime ski visits and some summer visits, but to be able to broadcast, you know, for Breckenridge to be able to broadcast its mountains to um, European skiers, for example, through media uh, is a great way to, to bring people over, even if it is through a mountain bike race. Um, ultimately, though, you found that the sentiment within the town was not entirely positive. You spoke with the mayor, some uh, locals. What type of feedback did you get um, when when they heard about this deal? It's kind of an interesting dynamic because, yes, I think generally speaking, most towns are excited to have recognition and excited to have world class events hosted in their you know at their home in their home court basically on their own trails and. Uh, initially, in fact, uh, the mayor, Eric Mamala, he told me that he thought it was a great opportunity. He was really excited when Mike McCormick had uh, had let him know about the potential for this sale. Um, and they had you know, talked about it. They have a close relationship. They've known each other for years. They talked about it. And Mike McCormick came to the city council meeting, and that went very smoothly. And then, yeah, the locals started to hear more about what this deal would look like and what it would mean. And they started to get a little concerned, and they started to speak out about it. And Breckenridge is kind of an interesting town in Colorado because um, you know this, Fred, but uh, perhaps for our listeners who aren't quite as familiar with the geography of it, Breckenridge is quite close to Denver. It's quite close to the Front Range. And I would say as far as Colorado mountain towns go, it gets a lot of traffic all year round, winter, summer, even in the shoulder seasons. It's... um, it's kind of got this tension between wanting to do cool events and wanting to promote exciting events and mountain bike races, ski races, everything. But also there's this kind of undercurrent of people being concerned that it's getting loved to death, so to speak. And, um, you know, that means like the campgrounds are overrun. That means that the town's main street is, you know, traffic at the, at the stoplights and hard to get to table at the restaurant, things like that, where the locals, after after enough of this, they start to feel like, man, this isn't quite the Breckenridge that I knew when I moved here in the 1990s or whenever it was. And yeah, there's there's always going to be growth in these towns, and it's hard to avoid that entirely. But I think that for a lot of people, there was a concern that it was moving too fast to uh, to bring in Ironman and its backing and to turn this into a, a major international event relative to what it is now, which is still a very big bike race and still a very important event. But uh, you're talking about essentially tripling uh, the event, and that means you're you're tripling the number of of friends and family that come along. You're you know the the staff for the event is much much larger. The impact is much larger. What impression did you get from folks about the uh, being the event being associated with Ironman itself? You know, Ironman is very famously the biggest brand in triathlon. Um, there tends to be a bit of a cultural divide sometimes between triathlon and cycling or triathlon and mountain biking. Mountain bikers think of themselves as being very laid back and mellow, whereas the triathletes are a little bit more performance focused. I mean, I can say this as a triathlete. I have competed in many Ironman events in my day. I've Fred, also competed in mountain bike races. 
racist. You should not admit that. Yeah, you should yeah. never, ever admit that. I didn't that. get the M dot. No tattoo, not, no tattoo for me. But well, I at least none that's visible. Plenty of blisters from Ooh. running marathons after doing uh, 112 mile bikes. Um, did you get a sense from people, though, that the, the Iron Man brand itself served as um, a tension point for some of these uh, fans of the race? I don't necessarily think that's the case, Fred. I don't think that people had a vendetta against Iron Man specifically. Yeah. I, I, in fact, Mike McCormick, he told me very unconditionally that he really liked the people he was working with at Iron Man as they were going through the process of figuring how to, out how to do this sale. He he thought they would be great. He, he enjoyed working with them. They were very professional, had nothing bad to say. Um, granted, you know, this is on the record, so who knows what his deepest, darkest thoughts are on the matter, but he, he's, you know, at face value, he said they were great people to work with. And, and I think also those, those feelings were reflected in what I heard from Eric Mamela, the mayor, who also said that the Ironman people were quite diligent and very good. I, I think it just more comes down to a strict a numbers game where, like I said, all these people are coming to town. And what I, what I kind of didn't mention in my previous response to your question is the fact that, uh, this has a big impact on the trails themselves. Mm. And I think that's actually a big sticking point for um, not only Mike McCormick, but the, the town as a whole and its um, overall sort of philosophy of conservation and making sure these beautiful natural spaces that are just right next door to the town are kept you know, as pristine as you can hope them to be. Granted, there's trails there, there's people there, people are gonna enjoy them, but to have you know that many people on the trails, it's a concern in terms of the, the environmental impact. Um, now, the one thing that I did hear from uh, Scott Reed, who's uh, director of recreation for the town of Breckenridge, he's very involved with all the course um, design for Breck Epic. He's the, he, he always, every day he'll get up in front of the, the racers at Breck Epic and walk you through the course, explain all the details of it. It's, it's one of those where, you know, you hear all the trail names and it just like goes right through your head. Or it's like, oh yeah, Johnny slide down to broken thumb and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I don't know what those trails are, but. Sounds great, man. Let's do it tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, what Scott was telling me was that he felt that there might be a little bit of a, a culture change if Iron Man were, were to come in. And he felt like perhaps the race might become a little more about winning and losing and results and times and that, whereas Breck Epic is, it's like you say, it's more of a mountain bike culture thing where you know people are there to experience it, to ride some cool single tracks, see some beautiful views. Isn't there only one rule? Don't be a jerk or something. Don't be a dick. Actually, don't be yeah. a dick. I think there's two others, but that's the most important one. Yeah. And yeah, it's he he expressed some concerns about that. Now this is all hypothetical. Obviously, no one knows if that's really what would have happened. Um, it, it stands to reason that some of the original culture of Breck Epic would remain intact, but there were those concerns just because, yeah, Cape Epic, for instance, you know, Ironman's marquee mountain bike event. That's a really serious race. That's, I have the I World have Cup been, guys go to that. Yeah. And it, it, it's a shootout. So I have been to the Cape Epic, and this was before Ironman owned it. And even back then, it was a race. Every single person was. This was not a let's go finish, see if we can finish race. I mean, the days were long and punishing, but it was competitive, first place all the way to last place. Yeah. So there's no way of knowing, but I can tell you from my personal experience. You know, I I stayed up there in a condo with a few friends, and they were they were just doing it to to ride every day. They were just doing it to ride with people every day, to do a cool single track every day, to be with friends. They had a number plate on, but the their, their, their very least of their concerns was their result. Yeah. So I can see that. Sounds like there might have been a cultural divide. There might have been um, fears over the numbers and more people coming to town. It's the front range of Colorado. It's growing like crazy. And 
Um, it just sounds like at the end of the day, it may not have been uh, the right fit. Yeah, I think that's kind of the best way to put it. It was not like an acrimonious thing, I don't believe, from what I've heard. And, and you know, the last thing I would add is just that Mike McCormick's put 10 years into this race, and it's pretty much, he said, he's pretty much like a child to him. And I, I think he came to realize that he wasn't ready to see his, his kid go off to college or however you'd, you'd put that kind of, uh, that kind of analogy, but he, he wanted to hang on to it. He wanted to remain, re- remain in control of what he'd created and he wanted to, to see it through and, and, and be happy with, you know, what it means. Well, we should say that that decision meant that he did not get the payout that would help, uh, his kids go to very nice colleges and put yep. a, a, you know, buy him a much nicer house and do all sorts of other things. So yeah, that's, um, that's very true. Yeah. That's very true. Um, I will say that the sort of epilogue to this story, which unfortunately there just wasn't enough room in my story online to, to say this, but the good news is the epilogue is that the town of Breckenridge is going, is going to be a official sponsor of Breck Epic going forward. And they will be investing in the race uh, financially and they'll be providing more resources and giving the race much more support. And over the years, the Breck Epic really hasn't had any support from the town to speak of. Um, you know, it's had its blessing, of course, but um, Mike McCormick had been happy to kind of work in his own little sandbox and do his thing and keep chugging away. But now the town has realized that the race has a real intrinsic value to it. Um, going through this process with Ironman, it's really underlined that. And now they're going to step up and support it in a big way, which is exciting. And I think that means we're going to see a pretty big pro field next year because they're going to be able to offer a serious prize purse. That's good to hear. Well, the story is on villanews.com right now. Check it out and read about all about uh, the deal between the Breck Epic and Iron Man that did not happen. We should mention, we we used to be owned by Iron Man. Yeah, and for, a hot, like a, for hot, a hot minute. Yeah, yeah for a hot I, minute there. I had a cup of coffee with Iron Man. I, you know, I wish I hadn't got that tattoo when they bought us. I did an Iron Man race. Or wait, no, I did a uh, You just said that. Rock like, and roll. You just said you did not. <laughs> right, I mean, like, when we were owned by them. I oh, did you a rock were, and roll. I did a half marathon. Oh, so you checked all the boxes yeah. back, when we were, back when we were with competitors. I have so many finisher medals, wow. Spencer. I'm sure our listeners are just really digging Can't this content. Can't wait to show them this off. Great content. To you. <laughs> great content for the listeners. Um, before we get out of here, we should do a little what's off the front, what's off the back. All right, Spencer, to speed this along, we're going to do just one off the front, one off the back. You're oh. off the front. Am I off the front? Okay. Yeah, you're usually off the front. Oh, thanks. Uh, I'm going to say going out on top because Ruth Winder and Ellen Van Dyke leaving Sunweb at the end of the season to go to the Trek team, but they're leaving their their old Dutch team with some very happy memories because Ruth Winder has won two stages so far of the Tour de l'Ardèche, which is a pretty hard French stage race. She's looking good, by the way. World Championships coming up. I'm excited to see how she does there. And Ellen Van Dyke won the overall in the Madrid Challenge, which is a two-day race now, a team time trial, and then the circuit around Madrid on Sunday. So Ellen Van Dyke taking that win ahead of another American, Corinne Rivera, who is staying on the Sunweb team. So good times for Sunweb, even though two riders heading off the track. Uh Ardesh, Kasha Nuiadoma, I believe, leading that race she right now. is also a world's favorite. But stay tuned for more on Worlds. We'll talk about that on the yeah, next podcast. Yeah, we're going to have the big Worlds breakdown next week. All right, what's off the back, Fred? Oh, man, so much to be off the back about right now. Uh, I flipped on Twitter today, and I saw everyone at Bike Twitter all up in, up in arms 
about a tweet from our good friends over at ProCyclingStats.com. That, of course, is the website where you can literally search for every stat ever. We love them. We use them. They're wonderful. They sent out a very bizarre tweet today, though. Here's the tweet. Can someone tell us why healthy people buy e-bikes? Because they're lazy? They spelled they're wrong. Because it goes faster? Because everyone does? Do they charge it with their own windmill or solar cell? Is that... I can't tell if that's some sort of like political I, statement. I or, don't uh, charge an e-bike with my personal. E-bikes are fun. That's why so. people buy them. Yeah. Um, anyway, this um, pithy tweet elicited an avalanche of angry tweets back at them um, and pro cycling stats. I think they like erased their Twitter. They are like, oh, is yeah. this our fir- is this cycling's first e-bike related uh, Twitter stepping in doo doo? I don't know, man. But stick to stats. That's what I say. Yeah. We love those guys. We they, love them so kinda, much. But they kind of ate some garbage today. Yeah, let's let's leave that one alone. Anyway, Pro Cycling Stats, we still love you, even though your social media today was a little bit off. Uh, well, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to VeloNews Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The VeloNews Podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the VeloNews Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you the Brooklyn Google Blowout, playing the Bernard Purdy Classic, Soul Drums. <laughs>